Got a lot to share with you this morning as we follow up uh, our kind of finishing up our um, really the, the parousia principle that we started last week, the parousia principle. If you'll remember, we started, uh, we were kind of concluding the series on the, the doctrine and the dogma of, of uh, discipleship, the doctrine being the deity of Jesus, how, how Jesus relates to his own deity, how he relates to the Father, is really the um, model for how you and I are to live as disciples in relationship with the Messiah, in relationship with Yeshua. So if you understand how the Son relates to the Father, then you know how to relate to the Son. And so that's a very, very important thing. And it's no wonder that the deity of Jesus is the first doctrine that Satan attacks and undermines in a believer's life. Because if how we live as who we are is directly connected to how Yeshua lived as who how as who he was, is, and is, is to come, then all Satan has to do to throw our lives into chaos and confusion is to get us to doubt who Jesus is in relationship to the Father. So if he can cause us to doubt who Jesus is, pretty soon our definition of who we are as disciples in relationship, all of that comes into question. So this is a very important topic. And I, I want to jump down to Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2. And I will remind you that this is the, the section we're looking at now follows this great, this amazing section in Philippians chapter 2 that begins verse 5 where Paul starts off by saying your attitude should be that of the same as Christ Jesus. And then he outlines this amazing relationship between Jesus and the Father and how Jesus humbled himself and that becomes our example. And then after that, this little two-part series is kind of a follow-up to that. It, beginning in verse 12, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence but only, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I love this verse because, one, it uses a word that you're familiar with. Uh, well, you're not so familiar with the Greek word, but you're, you're familiar with the idea of the second coming of Christ. The Greek word there is the parousia of Christ, and Paul uses it here, and it helps us define that every time Paul's talking about the second coming of Christ, he's really talking about the second presence of Christ. It's not just a come and go, it's what happens when Christ comes and the impact of what it means for him to be present. So Paul is saying, look, just as you obeyed when I was present, now much more when I'm absent. So why is this important? Because discipleship is not a spectator sport. You're either in it yourself or you're not. Your, our discipleship cannot be dependent on always having someone around to remind us and spur us on. At some point, discipleship has to be, whether it's, it's not a Saturday thing, it's not a Sunday thing, it, it is a life thing. And if your discipleship and your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ has to do with who's up here in this moment, then you're in trouble. Because at some point, discipleship has to be the priority and passion of your life. It must become your choice to engage in letting the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives do everything the Holy Spirit has promised to do. And I can't do that for you up here. That's something you're going to do when you walk out the doors 
when you sit down at a meal, when you're interacting with your children, when you're interacting with your spouse, when you get up and go to work, whatever it may be, that's when discipleship matters most. Will you pray with me? Abba Father, we commit this time to you for your glory only. Let the words that are from you penetrate our hearts and minds. Let everything else fall away as chaff. Lord, have your way within us. Find us to be servants who are ready to listen. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So I want to finish, I want to go back to Philippians, and I want to uh, read this section for you that we're, that we're looking at following that amazing doctrinal application of the deity of Jesus, beginning in verse 12, chapter 2 of Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, which is the parousia, okay, that's not the word there, but that's, it's describing the parousia when he comes back. When that day comes, Paul say, says, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share with my joy with all of you. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So last week we focused on checking our acoustics, checking how we're listening. Because there's a Greek word in this passage that talks about when we obey, and it's the Greek word akuo, and it really has to do with not just what we hear, but what actually penetrates our hearts and minds, what we act, the truth we actually engage with. And sometimes we're, we're guilty. I know I'm guilty of, you know, I think that I've really heard, but I haven't. So are we listening to what we have been taught, what we have heard? Today, however, there's something else we really need to listen to if we want to grow as genuine disciples, and my assumption is going to be that that is you. My assumption is that you, you, you wouldn't be here if the Big 12 championship was more important than your walk with the Messiah. Nothing against the Big 12 championship. It'd be fun to be there. But it's also fun to be here. I like this meme that's been going around that reminding us church isn't the thing that should be replaced. It, it should be the thing that's the priority in our lives. And parents, if, if the church is the thing that can always be set aside, don't expect, just expect that when your kids grow up, that is the thing that will be the option and not the mandate for their life. Let me simplify it this way. We need to check the acoustics of what we are hearing inside our own mind and spirit. And the easiest way to know what is in our heart and mind is to listen. Are you ready for this? You want to know what's in your heart and mind? Listen to what comes out of your mouth. It, it just got awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> for all of us, including me. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul tells us to work our, out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, one of the things I hit kind of hard last week is, is that in this season of the year, uh, there's a lot of people that get more concerned about the idolatry in somebody else's life than the idolatry in their own. And, and the end result of that is you just suck the joy out of other people celebrating the Lord, and, and really you don't have much of your own. Paul places a high price tag on this subject with his word fear and trembling. And, and I want you to think this morning when I use the word price tag, I'm talking about how uh, not just Paul but the apostles, when they say something like that, they, they put a high premium on it. They, they, they elevate the significance. When he tells you, man, this thing, your salvation, you should be pursuing this with fear and trembling, that's not passivity, is it? I mean, that's full engagement of our heart, soul, and mind. And he's going to talk to us today and I just love, love, love the what, what he's going to do because I love it when the scripture, the way Paul writes, creates the object lesson and the illustration for us and makes it e easily visible. So let's dive in. Paul reminds us in verse 13 that it is God who is at work in you and it is, his, and it is he that is doing two things. Now, now, I want you to think about this. this. Please don't just sit there and go, okay, this is what the text says. He's going to tell me these two things. No, this is what God is doing, wants to do in you. So this is a moment to check your acoustics. Is what I'm about to read happening in you? Two things. One, to will, meaning to conform our thinking and our desires to his meaning God is working within us to change our mind from our will and our priorities and our passions to his. Now that changes how we listen, it changes how we see, and if that change is actually happening, it will change how we speak. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The second thing it says that he's doing is not only to will to, to conform us to his will, but to work. And the Greek word here is the word from which we get our word energize. As God conforms us to, uh, conforms uh, your will and your thinking to his, that becomes the vehicle by which he can then release his power, his energy, if you will, to help you accomplish the things that he's called you to do. And this, this is a symbiotic relationship. This is a codependent relationship. You can't have one without the other. There's a lot of us who want the power of God released in our life. Amen? But the power of God isn't going to be released in our life if, if our mind, our will, and our passions are all about us and not about him. So he conforms us first to his will so that he can then conform us and use us to his work. Now you may say, well, he just sounds like he's using me. Yeah, isn't that great? I mean, normally when we talk about someone using, well, they're just using me. But when you talk about, well, God's just using me. Yeah, how amazing is that? I mean, you know, it kind of amplifies the old, you can't get good help these days. I mean, you know, I, I get it. But at the same time, what an exciting, exhilarating thought that God isn't just wasting his time. He's actually doing something amazing within me. So, I mean, I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
I don't know what you do when, when you go to work, but if you ever want to ask the question, what does God do when he goes to work? What does God's work week look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like God's spirit working on me, in me, through me, to me. You, <laughs> you are God's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, project. And even on the Sabbath, Jesus said, yeah, the Father's still working. I mean, he, he is, that's what God does. I'm his priority. Now, if that's what God does when he works, maybe I should be a little bit more intentional about what I'm doing to make sure of two things. One, that I'm not getting in the way of his work. And two, that I'm actively engaged in the work he has called me to do. Are you with me? Let me share what I call the principle of proximity. Sounds really important, doesn't it? Proximity is how near you are to something. When Paul or any of the other apostles writes something that is really important, they will usually amplify it with words like fear and trembling. Uh, we'll, we'll show some others uh, later. But the idea is they will say things that have a huge price tag and they will often follow that statement, that declaration about Jesus with, the, with the, this huge price tag with an immediate application or a significant context as to how that great truth is supposed to apply to our lives. Are, are you with me? That's the proximity principle means if the disciples are going to make this huge theologically significant statement, they're going to follow it with a hugely significant applicational explanation. I need to be paying attention to that. The proximity of the application to this majestic, elevated, whatever statement it may be, shows the importance not only of the original statement, but also of the application. Um, let me give you an example of that in Jesus' life. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 in Sermon on the Mount? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is that a price tag or is that a price tag? When the Son of God looks at you and says, if you want to be in my kingdom, your righteousness is going to have to exceed theirs. That's a huge price tag. What is Jesus, what is the closest proximity, what topic does Jesus then immediately talk about? You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus goes from Matthew 5.20 saying, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds that of the others. And his immediate application is, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I'm going to tell you if you have hatred in your heart, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see the proximity? Man, why in the world would he choose that context for his first application? Man. 
he chooses it to make a very significant point. Because righteousness is always the act of selfless giving for the benefit and sake of the life of someone else, even if it means the giving of our own lives. And murder is the exact opposite of that. It is the ultimate expression of unrighteousness because it not only is an act of utter selfishness, but it's the ultimate act of taking what does not belong to you. So what does he just accuse the Pharisees of? Murder. I don't have time to preach the rest of this. Matthew is a murder mystery. It's where it starts. It's where it stops. And there's a reason Jesus points it out. There's a reason for the proximity. We need to pay attention. Are we? The Pharisees were so narcissistic in their thinking that, that most of what they did didn't actually lift people up but press them down. They were life thieves. Do you hear me? They were life thieves. You know what a life thief is? It's a person who sucks the joy out of life. It's a person who turns the commandments of God into a burden instead of a blessing. It's a person that turns the Sabbath into some kind of legalistic obligation where, whereby we can judge one another. You know the point. Verse 13, the price tag is this, God is at work in you, but how is he at work within us? By allowing us to hear his words through the word of God and through the presence, the parousia of his Holy Spirit. So let me just simplify. How is God working in us? He's speaking to us. He's sharing his heart and his mind with us through the written word, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, if we want to be an effective and, prog and progressive in our, and I don't mean liberally progressive, but forwardly progressive in our lives, we cannot turn around and do the exact opposite in someone else's life. Look at the proximity principle. Verse 14, we've just been told that God is the one who is working to will and to work within our lives. Are you with me? And then he's going to give an illustration. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Wait, what? I mean, <laughs> I mean, verse 13 was really cool. God's working in me. That's amazing. God's speaking to me. How's Paul going to follow it up? Stop complaining and stop grumbling. Now, do you understand what I mean by the proximity principle? If what he has just said in verse 13, th this revelation is so important about what he's doing in my life, the application, the context of what he's going to tell me to do or not do is equally important. And so how does he follow up telling me God is the one who's speaking, God is the one who is working within me? Stop grumbling and stop complaining. This first application is making sure, please hear this, that we are not doing the opposite in someone else's life of what God is trying to accomplish. Did you hear me? Price tag, God is speaking, God is moving, God is patiently working with us. Don't get in his way. 
Don't make what's coming out of your mouth into their heart, their mind, their soul more important than what's coming out of the word of God and the spirit of God and the presence of God in their life. Can I please get an amen? amen. Don't be that person who is actually being used to do the exact opposite of what God is wanting to do in our lives. This is why I love God's word. Because I don't just love what he says, I just love the way he says it. I love the way he emphasizes his point. God is working in us via his word, and he is sharing with us his heart and his mind. Meanwhile, there are believers who think that what they have been called to do is to constantly be grumbling and disputing, which are byproducts of their minds and not God's. And the ones who pay for it are those who must suffer the never-ending deluge of our need to voice our opinions about other people. And Facebook hasn't helped that. Because now we don't have just a small little group of, you know, our little gossip clatch that we can get together and, and, and share our little phone calls. Now we can, we can meddle in everybody's business and we can bless everybody with my opinion. I should have heard angels. I do. That's how in love with our opinions we are. And when we do that, we become the anti-voice in someone else's heart, soul, and mind. While God is working to speak his heart, his will, his mind, and someone else, we're spewing our mind, our opinions, and our judgments into them. And here's the kicker. People who do these two things, grumbling and disputing, most often do so because they are convinced they are the voice the other person needs to hear the most. I'm a preacher. Not going to lie, preaching to an empty room is not much fun. I appreciate it when people show up to let me share my opinion or my, what the Lord has given me. But what I say is not more important than what he says. And if... The only time you're feeding your soul about what God might be saying is through me and not through your own daily discipleship with him, you're in trouble. But what they don't know is that by engaging in that behavior, they're not helping but hurting others, and they are impeding God's work. They're not just hurting others. They're impeding God's work within themselves. Come on, church. How many of you want God's word and his will, the, the spirit, to will and to work in your heart and mind and life? You, know, you want to know how to slam the door on that? Open your mouth and make what you think about something more important than what he's saying. It will not only harm the other person, it will shut your own progress down. All right? Folks, this is, this is a serious topic. The proximity of this application of what we shouldn't be doing juxtaposed with what God is doing 
should cause us to fear and tremble that we should get in the way of God's work in someone else's life should cause us, wow, a serious pause in how we're behaving. Now to get a, fully get a handle on what we need to understand, once again, Paul is gonna use juxtaposition and this is what I love about the scriptural writers. We've already, Paul has already introduced the juxtaposition of how they obey and hear when he's there versus how they obey and hear when he's not there. That's a juxtaposition, all right? But now he's going to give us another one. And the first one is the juxtaposition of what God is doing in us juxtaposed with the damage we can do in others. And that, that's... Am I the only one? That's just sobering to me. That's terrifying. But Paul uses another textual juxtaposition that we really need the Greek to fully appreciate. This juxtaposition juxtaposes two types of people. And we've seen these type of people before. Just to help you understand how the Bible juxtaposes people. Remember, scribes and Pharisees, tax collectors and sinners. Do you remember this? Scribes, experts in the law, Pharisees represented themselves as the most righteous, the best givers. Juxtaposed to the sinners, what are they? Experts in breaking the law. And the tax collectors, experts in giving, experts in taking. This, so what's happening here is not new. We've seen this before. I bring it up because by repetition, I hope you can begin to pick these things up yourself. So who are the two groups that Paul is going to use a double juxtaposition? Again, two and two. So let's look at it. The first one are the grumblers. And let's change this translation. And the translation I'm going to give you is legitimate to the word. But I want to put it, sometimes we, when I say we need the Greek, it's because in, if you knew the Greek language, you would see the juxtaposition. All right, the Greek thinker would know the juxtapositions there. But sometimes our English words kind of disconnect us from the juxtaposition. So let's change grumblers to a very literal definition, fault finders. These are people who constantly have two types of conversations. The first is with themselves. It is an, they are always looping on the faults they see in others and allowing that internal perpetual judging to poison them against others. They are fault finders. And fault finders seldom keep it to themselves. <laughs> Amen? They, 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 they need me to share with them. I don't think they're aware. So they need me to share with them. Can I remind you, good Torah-sensitive people, about what happened in the wilderness and one of the things the Lord said not to do? Murmuring and grumbling. How'd that work out for Israel? It kept some of them from going into the promised land. I mean, again, this, this is a huge price. You go back and study that, you're going to see the price tag God puts on this topic. 
God does not appreciate people who spend their life fault-finding when God spends his life forgiving our faults. And if you think you know God and you spend your life finding faults in other people and aren't spending your life forgiving faults in other people and loving them in spite of that, then you're not listening to God's voice. And that's why there's no energy to do God's work. Fault finders get obsessed with their own thoughts and judgments of others in their mind. So they always have this converse, this internal conversation. And secondly, that always manifests in an external conversation. And they begin to murmur. And they begin to grumble. I'm 60 years old, and I cannot tell you how many times I have seen the progress of congregations just nullified sabotaged and it doesn't take a lot I mean sometimes just one or two people that are just constantly critical about everything I mean after after a while you're like why are you here I mean honestly the grass has got to be greener somewhere else please feel free to go find it I mean you they just wear you out is that what God's doing in us Is God wearing us out, finding fault? No. So we have the grumblers, the fault finders. But then he says we also have the disputers. The Greek word is the same word where we get our English word dialogue, meaning dialogue as in a conversation. But this word has to do with an internal conversation that we have in our own mind. The word that is used can be defined as a calculation, a reasoning, a deliberation, or a plotting. That last one kind of puts pen in it, doesn't it? The word indicates someone who is obsessed with constantly trying to figure something out and going back and forth never in a never-ending reasoning cycle which leads to disputes with others because they can't come to any kind of settlement in their own heart and mind. I mean, I want you to think about this. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to ask you to judge somebody else, but just by our own life example, all of us have people in our lives that we know just cannot come to peace about one topic, uh, one subject in the Bible. I, I remember a guy back in uh, Indiana who just could not come to peace with, the, with the, the whole predestination thing. And it literally sabotaged his progress until we found a way to kind of disconnect him from that and help him move on. I mean, you can't, am I the only buddy that loops? You know the problem with a loop? It doesn't go anywhere. Come on. It doesn't go anywhere. And these disputers are people who are dialoguing constantly. And, and one minute they think, Let, let's take the deity of Jesus. Because this is something our movement has, has struggled with. And you know people, that, you know, one minute they're like, yes. He is the son of God. He is fully man, fully God. And then, you know, just this summer, I asked the question at uh, CYC camp. I said, you know, is Jesus God? And I saw a young man who I love in my whole heart just went, "Mm." we have people who just cannot, and, and they think the problem is that God hasn't revealed enough to answer the question when the real problem is you won't stop looping. 
You're spending so much time trying to figure him out instead of believing what he's already told you. And do those people ever come to peace on that subject? Never. And they show up at the Bible study and what do they do? They sow that doubt into your mind. Now that doesn't mean we can't handle questions about that. We need, you know, this Tuesday night, you're free to ask those questions. But understand that sometimes people just, they, they go and they go and they go and they, they loop and they loop and they never come to peace. Romans chapter 14, verse one. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I wish we had time to read that whole passage, but we don't. Take time to read uh, Romans 14, one through 10. Because in this verse, the word translated opinions is the same word Paul just used in Philippians for disputing. These are the kind of people who want, who are either, or either have fit exalted opinions, and remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, our attitude should be that of, that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, all right? They're either people who have exalted opinions or who have never-ending insecurity, and they are in flux in their opinions all the time. And just like the fault finders, they never keep it to themselves. So you've got fault finders, and you've got, <laughs> I'm not sure what to call them, inconsistent opinionators, all right? This is a classic double juxtaposition for now Paul's going to follow up with two, you know, don't be those guys, be these guys. Verse 15, don't do that so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Uh, on, on one hand, you have fault finders or you can be you can either be a fault finder or you can be blameless. But now, when we use the word blameless, we disconnect the juxtaposition in our minds. So let me change blameless. And let me give you a definition that is consistent with the meaning of the Greek word. Faultless. Blameless, faultless. Meaning you can be someone who's constantly blaming people or you can be blameless. You can be a fault finder or better yet, you can be one in whom you have been found faultless. But how is one found faultless? Remember the fault finders, as implied by the word Paul uses, are those who are in a never-ending internal conversation about the shortcomings of others. They're obsessed with hearing their own voice on every topic. Do you want to be found faultless? Come on, church. Don't do that. <laughs> this is your great sermon today. You may want to write this down. Don't do that. If you want to be blameless, don't spend your life blaming. If you want to be faultless, don't be a fault finder. Don't you love the juxtaposition? Does that help? See, that's why I love why the Bible uses juxtaposition. It's not just me. 
Now, remember the proximity principle. Why is this so important? Because Paul has just told us that God is speaking and working his will in us, and people who are obsessed with the failures of others are those who are spending the majority of their time listening to themselves and not God. Check your acoustics. What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be the voice within us and within them. Let him do his job. You don't want to be blameless? Or you want to be blameless? Stop being someone who blames. And I mean, wow. Talk about how far do we have to look into our own culture to find an illustration for application. I mean, nobody in this generation is responsible for anything. I'm, I'm oppressed. I'm persecuted. I, 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 you know, I'm underprivileged. I didn't have this. I didn't have that. Therefore, I'm not responsible or accountable for my behavior. I am entitled to be a jerk, to be a thief, to be mean-spirited, to be violent, and it's never my fault. That's fault finder. And if you can look at how devastating that is in our culture, church, how much more devastating is it in the body of Christ? When we have the potential to be a people being ministered to directly by the word of God, hearing the spirit of God, being led by God in, in a world that needs us to be light. When we behave like that, we become darkness. And then there's no energy to go into the world to be who we're called to be. Then Paul says, okay, you got the fault finders. You've got the, those found faultless. And then you've got the disputers, the opinionators. Or you can be found innocent. Now, let's be honest. Using the words blameless and innocent are probably not words any of us really want to run. If I, if I said, hey, how many of you are faultless and blameless? <laughs> well, we got one. <laughs> but most of us are, are old enough to know, oh, I don't want to say that. I mean... My wife knows me. You know, I don't want to get the, you know. And yet that's what God says. That's how he sees us. That's what he's doing in us. It may be uncomfortable, but the word here that Paul uses is a word that literally means unmixed or pure. R remember the, the disputers, the dialoguers? The, that word actually comes from this idea of this never-ending conversation, this, this constant mix of ideas that never settles on truth. All right, that's, that's the context, this constant mix. So the juxtaposition with the innocent isn't, please hear me, it doesn't mean sinless. Paul is never going to say to you, oh, by the way, you are completely free from sin. He'd be contradicting John. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why would John write that? In fact, he goes on and says, if you claim to be without sin, you make God out to be a liar. 
So if God says, I'm, I'm doing something in you to, to find you faultless and, and, and innocent, that doesn't mean that the expectation is that you're going to be 100% complete from sin. So what is, this is why we have to dive into the original language sometimes, the Greek, to understand that in this case, innocent is being juxtaposed with this crazy mix of opinions versus a single-minded, pure focus. Does that help? That's what innocent means in this context. It, it means that God is looking for a people who become so singularly focused on hearing what God is saying and not everybody else's opinion and not the constant dialogues, the constant debates, the constant conspiracy theories. He wants to know what God, she wants to know what God has said about this, and that's it. And in that innocence, you find peace. You, you, you come to a place where it's okay if you don't know every definition. It's okay if you don't know every application. Hebrew roots people, can I tell you this? There is nothing going to be discovered that changes everything. Come on. Can I get an amen on the TV, those people you watching at home? <laughs> Shout it loud so we can hear it in Norman. There is no, well, I found this in the Hebrew word, and it changes everything. No, it doesn't. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the only Hebrew root that ever changed everything. Amen. He is the one that changes everything. Well, I found this three-letter root. Good for you. I found the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not letting go of that because you found a three-letter root. Now, you know I'm a word nerd. You know I love those three-letter roots. Okay, stop right. <clears throat> Carnal side tried to take over there. Thank you, Jesus. If you want to be found faultless, stop finding fault. Let the Holy Spirit do his thing. If you want to be found innocent, let his peace rule in your heart and bring you to a consistent and settled understanding of who he is and who he wants to be in your life. The disputers are obsessed with their own opinion and their own voice. Because they are sinful, their sinful minds are never settled. I can't live like that. I, I have watched this destroy so many congregations, both, you know, mainline church, mainline messianic, Hebrew roots messianic, doesn't matter. The price tag on this is huge. Isaiah prophesied, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. King James Version. God doesn't want us to be an inconsistent mix of ever-changing opinions. So how much is at stake here? Well, first, your salvation. What do I mean by that? I'm not saying that you should doubt the security of your salvation. 
But if you have no fear of judging others, then you have no fear of God, and that should terrify you. I'm going to say it again. If you have no fear of foisting your opinions and your judgments and your condemnations on other people, then you don't even begin to know what it means to fear the Lord. You can't nudge him off his throne and say, hey, I'll do your job for you this month. It doesn't work that way, people. Paul says that all of this is a process of becoming. He uses the word that comes from a Greek word, genomai, which has to do with birthing and bringing something about. So this is all, when he says, when he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. The word prove there is this word, genomai. It has to do with the definition of becoming. It doesn't mean I'm going to prove that I'm already there. I mean, think about what Paul said. Not that I have already what? Obtained all this. So Paul's not going to turn around now and go, now you can prove you've obtained all this. Right? So that's why we have to look at some of the definitions of the words. This is a definition of becoming. And what God is, what Paul's trying to say is that because of Jesus' example as the son of God who became man, who had this amazing relationship of listening to the father, we have the opportunity to become a part of the process of becoming what he has desired us to be from the very beginning. Now, I looked up the definition of unbecoming. Unbecoming is something that is shockingly inappropriate or unsuitable for someone's life. Recently, we were told a story about a group of Bible college kids who went and stayed at a particular location. They were there for an event, and one of the managers walked up to these Bible college students and was shocked at their language and their vocabulary. The F word, and I'm not talking about faith, was being dropped everywhere. Church, the F word is shockingly inappropriate for those in the body of Christ. It is shockingly inappropriate. When you say it, it is shockingly inappropriate. When you abbreviate it, when you acronym it, when you post it, it is shockingly unsuitable to come out of your mouth. Do I need to repeat that? Was I, was I clear on that? I even surprised myself. It was shockingly inappropriate when it came out of my mouth. That was a word I did not grow up saying. But our culture is saturated with it, and now we're hearing it within the body of Christ. It's shockingly inappropriate. Do you understand why I'm stressing this? 
what we're listening to. But you know what is even more shockingly unbecoming? is for believers to use their voice to undermine the becoming process that God is working in somebody else's life with unbecoming words and actions. When we're so full of our opinions and so full of our condemnations and judgments that God is dealing with a person that, you know what, you may be absolutely right. You may be absolutely right about their faults, their weakness, whatever. Paul says, so what? Love them anyway. In verse 15, Paul says that you will prove the process of becoming blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. We're going to have to skip some stuff here. What an opportunity this season presents us. You say, well, well, which one, Brent? Does it matter? What an amazing opportunity the season of Advent. Advent's just another word for presence. We're just... A lot of people just focusing this month on when the word became flesh. What an opportunity this season of Advent could be. What an opportunity this season of light, this season of Hanukkah, this season of dedication could be. It could be amazing if maybe we decided to listen instead of lecture. Some of, some of you will have Christmas trees, some will not. Some will light the Hanukkah menorah for eight nights, some of you will not. Some of you will spend the entire month worried and focused on those two issues and not once consider how am I allowing the Messiah to be present in my life and how am I listening to him? And what do other people hear coming out of me? I mean, remember the proximity principle? God is at work in you. Watch what you say. That's a huge price tag. But here's what is amazing. It is God who is working both to will and to work for his good pleasure within us. And we have a choice. We can be fault finders or we can literally be found faultless. Not perfect, not sinless. But don't you just love being around people that you know aren't going to beat you down? I mean, be those people. 
In short, this season of Advent and this season of light, if we truly seek his presence in our lives, we could experience the energy of God, the empowerment of his presence and spirit, to know what to say, to know when to listen, to know when to give and what to give, we could truly make this an amazing month. Now, I want to close this morning, and I'll invite the worship team to come back. But I have something I want to share with you. It's an addendum to this message. And the reason I want to share it with you is because... I felt like the Lord kind of laid it on my heart this morning, and it may be a specific, in general, I know it applies to probably all of us, but I'm thinking there may be someone who really needs to hear this today. If you're like me, you ask the question, how do I know if I'm listening to the voice of God? Listening to God's voice, one way that you know that, and this is really what I want you to hear this morning. When you're listening for God's voice and to God's voice, be it from the word of God or something the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart, it will not create paralysis. It will not create spiritual inactivity. It will not impede your ability to move and do the things that you're called to do. And this is what the Lord was laying on my heart this morning. Some are spiritually paralyzed because they sit around waiting for God to tell them again what he has already told them. And I've been stressing for weeks now that the example that we're to follow is Jesus when he only said what he heard the father say and only did what he saw the father do. Now, I want to make sure you understand what that means and what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that Yeshua was incapable of acting on his own. He, he didn't have to stop every single moment and go, hmm, should I heal him? Should I not heal him, Lord? Um, wait, what? And I won't tell you why I know that. Listen to how Jesus begins his ministry. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed uh, free, to proclaim to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus went about declaring the gospel to the poor, freedom to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, release for those who are oppressed. Listening to God did not mean he was paralyzed and he couldn't fulfill his calling unless God said it again what he'd already said. 
And that's what is really heavy on my heart, that some of you are paralyzed, you are stagnated in your progress with the Lord because you're waiting for him to tell you again what he's already told you in his word. I am with you. I am for you. I have more than what you need. I have called you to do these things. Go do them. And I think I told you years ago, I told Tanya when we were in Tel Aviv one day, I came back and I, this was in June. I said, guess what? We're moving to Tel Aviv in August. She goes, oh, really? I said, yeah. She goes, are you going to pray about it? I said, nope. She goes, what? What do you mean you're not going to pray about it? I said, honey, I am tired of asking. I think the Lord is tired of me asking him for permission to do what he's already called me to do. Knowing some of the Hebrew language will help me with my study. It will help me with ministry to Jewish people in the land of Israel. And the Lord is just waiting for some of us to stop asking for another sign, for asking for permission. What has he told us to do? To go and minister to the oppressed, to care for the widows and orphans, to lift burdens off and not put them on, to reach out and share with people, the elderly, the, 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 the poor, the under, whatever it is. And I just felt like, and maybe it's for me, but I'm just wondering if the Lord is the one is who, who is willing, speaking to do his will and to do his work within us, is it possible you could be here today and you're paralyzed because you're waiting him, you're demanding that he tell you again what he's already told you and he's waiting for you to get out of the boat and do it. Come on. Somebody out there needs you to do what he has already called you to do. He has already equipped you to do. He has already empowered you to do. But I don't know how to start the conversation. Hello. It's a good start. Let him take it from there. So that's just an addendum to this message because I felt like it was something the Lord added that I felt like someone might need to hear. The Lord's not trying to be distant. He's just waiting for you to be dedicated. The Lord is not distant. He's just waiting for you to be dedicated, to dive in and use this season to listen and to let him do everything he said he would do in us because never will I leave you never will I forsake you I am present with you always amen let's stand and worship